Thank you for inviting us to be here with you this morning. It's my privilege to uh, bring the Word of God to you. I don't want to take up too much of your time with my uh, worldwide wanderings, but uh, is Matt Durkee here? Oh, Matt, we, we have communicated by email, but never met. And uh, so Matt's organization is a very special one as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I'm, I was privileged to going to Burkina Faso to teach pastors there, and uh, that developed into co-founding the Gampella Center for Christian Education, uh, which is not far from uh, Matt's location, and uh, Friends in Action were the ones that uh, drilled our well there. They had a great deal of difficulty finding water, but eventually uh, were able to do that, and that well has provided water for us and for the community all of these years now. That's got to be probably uh, 10, 11 years, or 10 anyway, since uh, that happened. And uh, when I first went out to Gampella, which is just outside of Ouagadougou, I th and uh, my partner there, John Tandamba, said, Pastor John said to me that he had a, really a burden from the Lord to start a Christian school. And I went out to the property and I looked around and I thought to myself, not a chance. Couldn't see anybody, couldn't see any houses, just bush, rural community, nothing there. Well, today there are 400 students in our school. There are over 300 in our preschool program. We have a church of 60 or 70 people. We have a medical clinic. And we have just uh, begun a vocational trade school teaching uh, young men and women trades that they can earn a living from. And so I tell you all of that just so that you can see how God works in wonderful ways, working out his purposes in our lives in things that we um, would have never dreamed uh, would have been possible. And so the Gampella Center is a wonderful light for the gospel. I've been there many times and, of course, now not been able to travel because of COVID, uh, but look forward, Lord willing, to going there uh, again one of these days. Well, a few years ago, a young 19-year-old uh, man, a young person uh, by the name of Ben Elliott, was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia a highly uncommon and very aggressive and dominant cancer cell. He's the, he was the son of Dave and Lisa Elliott. Dave at that time was the pastor of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford. Some of you may have read uh, Ben's mother, Lisa's blog online as they walked with Ben through this trial. Ben responded well to the uh, chemo treatment initially, and their hopes were high that he would be able to have a bone marrow transplant. But just before he was to receive it, a routine blood test and a lumbar puncture revealed that the cancer was back. He had relapsed, and the transplant had to be canceled. Ben began a second 30-week intensified course of treatment. In her blog, his mother, Lisa, said this, so where does this leave us? We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. When asked how Ben does it, or how we, she said, as a family, are doing, our answer is plain and simple. In God's strength alone, Day by day, 
hour by hour, minute by minute, Nehemiah 8.10 tells us, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And when I read that, I thought, what an amazing attitude Lisa Elliott, Ben's mom, had. Could I show that kind of response in the face of such a trial? All of us at times in our lives experience trials, perhaps not as severe as the Elliott family at that time, but trials nonetheless. There are many people facing weighty and very real trials. We know from Scripture that trials are part and parcel of living in a sinful world. But are we prepared for them? And what's our attitude to trials when they come? Do we see them merely as twists of fate? Do you consider yourself a victim of circumstances? Or do you approach them as experiences from the hand of a loving God who is refining you into his image by testing the reality of your faith? That's our subject this morning, the Christian attitude to trials. So let's turn to James chapter 1. That's our text for this morning's message. James chapter 1, reading verses 2 to 4. James chapter 1. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, before we continue, let's just pray together. Lord God, we're so grateful to be here this morning. I thank you for the songs of worship that Jessica chose and, and that the worship team led us in this morning and drew our hearts towards you, occupied us with who you are, the ever-present, all-powerful God, the one who helps us and empowers us through those trials that come our way. And I pray this morning for Stan as he goes through this extensive and deep trial that you'll support and sustain him and Donna and the family. And now I just pray that your word will do its work in us, for I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so James in these verses is trying to explain to us how to face trials as Christians. And his counsel, and I think we can summarize the entire message in this sentence, his counsel is you can face the testing of your faith with confidence when you know God's purposes in your life. When you know God's purposes in your life. And James says that despite the hardships Christians sometimes face, this is his first instruction to us, we can express the distinctly Christian attitude towards trials. In order to express a distinctly Christian attitude towards trials, it's important to recognize them for what they are. And he tells us that life's trials are unavoidable. He says, when you experience trials or whenever you experience trials, it doesn't say if, 
you experience trials, it says when. Life's trials are unavoidable. They're inevitable. It's not a matter of if, but when. They will come. We just don't know when that will be. Life's trials are unavoidable. They're inescapable. They're certain to afflict us. You can't get around them. They are simply part of the Christian life. That's a Christian reality. And you can't do anything about it. Life's trials, he says, are unavoidable. And he tells us life's trials are unpredictable. The idea here is that you fall into trials. Whenever you fall into trials, you don't see them coming. They occur at unexpected times. You don't plan them. They take you by surprise. They jolt you. They jar you. Just like when you trip over something. That's what life's trials are like, aren't they? Like stumbling over an unseen object. Like bumping into someone that you didn't see coming. All of a sudden, it's on you. Life's trials jolt us out of our lethargy, out of our apathy. They dislodge us from our lives of ease and comfort. They turn our world upside down. They jerk us out of a rut. And so it's important to recognize life's trials for what they are. They're unavoidable. They're unpredictable. And life's trials, he says, are individual. They are described as various trials. Trials aren't uniform. They don't follow a set pattern. The trials that you suffer may not be the same as I suffer. They're not all of the same nature. They're varied. They're multifaceted. They're trials of all different kinds. And you can see that in Job's life, can't you? All of the different trials that he experienced in his loss of wealth and health and family and the support of his wife and the comfort of his friends. Trials are individual. And in order to express a distinctly Christian attitude towards trials, it's important then to recognize them for what they are. James says they are unavoidable, they're unpredictable, they're individual. But nonetheless, and here's the good news, life's trials, he says, are sustainable. Consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. Trials will happen, they're inevitable, but we can deal with them by expressing a distinctly Christian attitude toward them. And the Christian attitude that we are to express towards trials is to consider them a great joy, James says, a sheer joy, all joy, some other translations say. That's how they're sustainable. That's how we rise above them, by considering them a great joy. Now, this is a distinctly Christian attitude towards trials. Now, notice this, that James isn't saying that life's trials are joyful occasions. That's not what he's saying. He isn't suggesting that if you lose your job, you go home that night, you burst through the door, and you say to your family, I have great news for you. I lost my job. James is not suggesting 
that you, if you are diagnosed with a serious illness, that you come home and you say to your spouse, the doctor gave me, gave me awesome news today. I have a serious heart condition. No, that would be delirious or manic behavior. That would be the attitude of someone who is irresponsible or immature. No, James is not trivializing trials. He isn't saying that trials are joyful experiences. Rather, he is saying that our attitude towards them should be to consider them a great joy. In other words, to reckon them, to consider the experience to be joy, even though it may not appear that way and even though it may not feel that way. Is he then, you may ask, merely advocating positive thinking as the antidote to life's trials? Not at all. In no way. Rather, he is advocating a distinctly Christian attitude towards trials, an attitude of joy that is not rooted in our circumstances, an attitude of joy that rises above the trials itself. This is an inner joy, then, that stems from mental, emotional, and spiritual health and confidence. It is a deep spiritual joy. Well, you might ask, how can we express that attitude? How do we respond that way? How can we consider a trial a great joy, even when the circumstances are bad? Well, we consider, can consider trials a great joy, not because we take pleasure in physical pain or deprivation, as though we have, they, they in themselves have some sort of spiritual value, but because we know that God is with us in the trial, working it out for our spiritual good, for the refinement of our faith. We can consider trials a great joy, not because we laugh at or rejoice in pain and suffering, but because we know the God of all comfort who is with us in the suffering. We can consider trials a great joy by looking beyond the trial, by seeing the big picture, by looking to the end result. By seeing the big picture, that is to see, to see what God has in store for us through this. The experience you see themselves may be awful, may be pain, may be hardship, Maybe embarrassment, maybe suffering, pain and loss. But the end result for which they are intended and to which they are leading is good. We can consider trials a great joy by resting in that secure sense of peace and confidence that comes from knowing that God is in control as the la our lady uh, sister prayed this morning, working all things together for our good. Remember the good that God is working out for us in our lives is not physical blessings or the elimination of pain and suffering, but the good that God is working out in our lives is greater conformity to his Son. Romans 8 and 29 tells us. Now you'll remember that Abraham faced 
the test of all tests, and he passed the test. He had to sacrifice the life of his one and only son after having waited years for him to be born and knowing that he was the one that God had promised, the one through whom the blessings of God would be carried out. Abraham must have surely wondered, what is this all about? Was he happy about sacrificing the life of his son? Of course not. But he passed the test of faith with no evidence of complaint or rebellion or resistance or objection or doubt. How did he do that? He did that because he had the right attitude, and his attitude was summed up and expressed when he said to Isaac, God himself will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. By faith, you see, he saw beyond the trial to the end that somehow God would work it all out according to his word, even though at that moment he didn't know how. He had that inner sense of peace and confidence that God is faithful and trustworthy, that God is in control, and that sustained him through the trial. On the other hand, the Israelites faced a test and failed. All of their wilderness wanderings, they grumbled and complained and rebelled against Moses and Aaron and God. Why? Because they had the wrong attitude. They lost sight of God's purposes for them. They failed to keep focused on the end. They were steeped in unbelief. They didn't trust God. They wanted to go back to Egypt. But then there was Joseph. He faced a great test of faith and passed. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers. He was sold to slave traders and bought uh, to, as a slave in Potiphar's household and ultimately thrown in prison for, uh, as an innocent person. But his attitude was summed up and expressed when he said ultimately to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the attitude that we need in order to pass tests of faith. Remember our theme for this passage. You can face the tests of your faith with confidence when you know God's purposes in your life. A heavenly perspective is what makes the difference in the Christian attitude to tests. It's seeing the end result while enduring the trial. It may not feel good now, but it will produce a good result if you, if you view it with a distinctly Christian attitude by considering it all joy. So that's our first thing we learned this morning. James says we can express the distinctly Christian attitude towards trials. He also says we can know the distinctly Christian purpose in trials. He's told us how to uh, face trials with joy, but on what basis? He says, because, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Often we face when we face trials, we lose sight of God's purposes. And when you lose sight of God's purposes, you can't face trials with joy. 
James says we can face trials with great joy because our attitudes towards them is based on what we know. Christians alone can consider trials a great joy because we know something that unbelievers do not know. We know that God has a distinctly spiritual purpose behind our trials. That's why we can consider them to be joy. The reason we count life's trials joy is not because we are like immature youths who make fun of things that are serious, not because we're like someone in a drunken stupor who scorns and laughs irrationally, not because we are like mentally disturbed persons who can't distinguish between what is serious and what is joyful, no, but because we know that God has a purpose for our lives. Our distinctly Christian attitude towards trials is based on our distinctly Christian knowledge, the knowledge that God has a purpose in our trials. So what is that purpose, you ask? We know that God's purpose in trials, James says, is the testing of your faith. It's to prove that your faith is genuine. It's to purify our faith like metal purified in the refiner's fire. The trial tests that test your faith may be economic hardship, perhaps, loss of a job, bad investment, an unexpected expense. Perhaps it's a prolonged and critical illness. Perhaps it's a family breakdown either in your marriage, perhaps, or wayward children. No matter what kind of trial it is, they all serve the purpose of testing our faith. They are the fire that refines us, purging out all impurities until our faith is uncontaminated, strong, perfect, pure, and precious. And so the purpose of the test is not to destroy our faith, but to refine it, to prove its genuineness, to produce pure faith, enduring faith. Now, you may claim this morning to have faith, but the question is, what kind of faith? Is it strong or weak? Is it a Sunday morning faith or all week long? Is it unshakable or insecure? Is it a faith only when you're with other Christians, but not visible when you're with non-Christians? Is it a faith that is dependent on circumstances, or faith regardless of circumstances? We know then that God's purpose in trials is to test our faith. There's a second thing we know. James says we know that God's purpose in trials is to produce endurance to strengthen our faith by removing any weaknesses in us, to develop persevering faith so that we don't quit partway through, so that we can finish the course, so that we can persevere to the end. The word endurance here literally means to rest under or to abide under. Tests of faith through trials, you see, are designed to develop in us the ability to abide under or to bear up under the pressure of the trial. 
and the proof that we're bearing up under life's trials is our attitude of joy. Like physical endurance, spiritual endurance can only be developed through testing, through spiritual weight training exercises. That is through things like opposition and ridicule and hardship and rejection and suffering. Endurance is a virtue, you see, of Christian character. It's a virtue of Christian character that is produced by trials that test our faith. Endurance is a virtue because it proves the reality of your faith, its genuineness, its authenticity, its permanence. It proves that your faith is more than mere words. It is real and endures for the long term. Endurance is a virtue because it identifies you with Christ who suffered the most extreme test and didn't flinch. Who endured, Hebrews says, the cross, despising the shame, the one who endured such hostility of sinners against himself. It identifies you with Christ. And endurance is a virtue because it imitates the apostles. You'll remember the story of Paul and Silas in prison, for example, under those very, very hard conditions of torture and jail in Philippi. They responded to this test of faith. How? With joy that was expressed as they burst into song at midnight. Such was their exuberant joy for being considered worthy to suffer for and with Christ that the other prisoners all knew about their faith and testimony and the jailer was converted. That's the ultimate in positive response to trials when the gospel is spread and people are saved. And at the end of his life, the apostle Paul could say, you have followed, in 2 Timothy 3, you have followed my teaching and conduct and purpose and faith and patience and love and endurance along with persecutions and sufferings that came to me. What persecutions I endured and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Endurance is a Christian virtue. It's a virtue because It imitates the example of the early Christians who we are told in Hebrews 10 endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes they were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions and at other times they were companions of those who were treated that way. Endurance in trials is a virtue because it imitates the lives of the patriarchs like Moses who chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to endure the fleeting pleasures of sin. It identifies us with others who experienced mockings and scourgings, Hebrews 11 says, as well as chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they died by the sword. So you see how Christian endurance through trials is a virtue. Only enduring faith is able to stand up in the heat of battle so that when Satan is waging war against God's people, you can withstand the attack. You don't run away. 
You won't give in to the enemy, but as Ephesians 6 says, when you've done all, you stand. And only those who have successfully withstood the test of their faith through various trials are able to withstand the onslaught of Satan and to endure to the end. And so firstly, James says, not only can we express a distinctly Christian attitude towards trials, not only do we know the distinctly Christian purpose in trials, but also, he says, we can expect a distinctly Christian result from trials. Verse 4. In order for this to be so, we must allow trials, he says, to accomplish their intended effect. Our response to trials, James says, is to be patient. He says, let, let, allow endurance to have its full effect. What he's saying to us here is don't try to hurry the process. Don't try to fast track it. Don't try to get it done with. Don't try to bring it to a premature completion. That's our tendency, isn't it? We want the trial to be over as soon as possible. But James is saying here, allow it to take its course. Let this Christian character building, faith strengthening, life purifying process have its full effect. Don't try to short circuit the system. Allow the process to go through to completion. And the reality is that testing continues throughout our lifetime. And so don't think that you can shorten it anyway. Let endurance have its full effect. Full effect occurs when the trial has done its job, had its desired effect. When it's come to completion, the full effect that God intends for trials to accomplish is the refining and the strengthening of our faith so that we trust God even in the most difficult circumstances. The greater the refining process, then the stronger and purer the end product will be. Not only must we allow trials to accomplish their intended effect, but we must allow trials to produce their intended result. James says the intended result of trials is that you may be mature and complete Lacking nothing. That's the full effect. That's the intended result of trials. Trials are meant to produce mature and complete Christians. Godly people whose deeds are consistent with their faith. Christians who are fully mature in their faith. They know who they are and what they believe. They stand firm in the face of adversity. And so here in James 1 verse 4... The full effect is the final result. When the testing process comes to completion, not simply a stronger faith, an enduring faith, but one whose life is fully consistent with the life of Christ. To be mature and complete, James says, is lacking nothing. There are really synonymous terms there. Lacking nothing, to be complete in Christ. To finally and fully attain Godly character to be a reflection of the life of Christ here on earth. And surely that's the burden, is it not, of every pastor. To present everyone perfect. Every Christian perfect 
and complete in Christ, Colossians 1.28 says. Of course, that condition will only come to completion at the end of the age, but even now, that's what we strive for in the present life. And so remember, you can face the testing of your faith with confidence when you know God's purpose in your life. For then and only then, James says, you can express a distinctly Christian attitude towards trials. You can know the distinctly Christian purpose in trials, and you can expect a distinctly Christian result from trials. Though the trials of this life are not easy, they're not pleasant, and yet we can consider them great joy because we know that they are producing Christ-likeness in us in ever more evident and purer ways until that final day when he is revealed from heaven and we will be his perfect image. And with such a goal, who would not consider trials great joy? Knowing that Christ, as Galatians 4.19 says, is being formed in us, formed in us through this strengthening and refining process. Is this a hard concept to understand? No. Is it, a, is it a hard process to endure? Yes. We don't like pain and hardship of any kind. We live in a society where people will go to almost any length to alleviate and mask the reality of pain and suffering. But that's not the Christian perspective on trials. The distinctly Christian attitude is joy and endurance, knowing that the end result is to make us strong in faith and more like Christ. On May the 17th, 2008, Christian recording artist Stephen Curtis Chapman and his family suffered the devastating loss of their five-year-old adopted daughter, daughter Maria, who was struck and killed when Chapman's 17-year-old son was driving their SUV into the driveway of their home. So great was the tragedy that Chapman thought he may never be able to sing again. But the song that brought him comfort and strength and which he sang at his first concert two months after Maria's death, was Blessed Be Your Name. Inspired by the story of Job, at one point the lyrics repeat, he gives and takes away. Chapman said this, As I sang this song, it wasn't a song, it was a cry, a scream, a prayer. He said, I found an amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. Instead of losing faith in the words he had previously sung and believed, Chapman said that the loss of his little girl brought the meaning of those songs into sharper focus. One of his songs, entitled Yours, 
addresses how everything in the world belongs to God. In this song in particular, Chapman said, I had come to a new realization. There's not an inch of creation that God doesn't look at and say, it's all mine. And as a result of that realization in conjunction with Maria's death, Chapman added a new verse to that song. It says this, I've walked the valley of death's shadow so deep and dark that I could barely breathe. I've had to let go of more than I could bear and I've questioned everything I believe. Still, even here, in this great darkness, a comfort and a hope comes breaking through. As I can say in life or death, God, we belong to you. Remember, you can face the testing of your faith with confidence when you know God's purposes in your life. Let's pray. Lord, this is a deep and heavy subject, not one to be taken lightly by any means. And yet we're deeply appreciative this morning that James could express it this way, to change our attitude, to refocus us on the end of the trial. And ultimately, in that great and glorious day, when, Lord Jesus, you come again, we shall be like you, for we shall see you as you are. We look forward to that. When we will be released from all of the vicissitudes of life, all the pain and suffering and hardship of this sinful, chaotic world, until then, we pray that you will enable us to endure trials with an attitude of joy as our faith is refined and strengthened and as we become more like you. For we pray this in your precious name. Amen.